get together. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. In the book of Ephesians chapter 3, there's a very famous verse, verse 18. I'll just read it out to you. I'll read 17 and 18. 17. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able, keep up, to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You may be able to comprehend, keyword, second part, with all the saints, what is the width, length, depth and height to know the love of Christ. So, why do I start there? Because what made the saints the saints? Like what makes someone happy to go to their martyrdom? Or what makes someone like St. Anthony willing to go out to the desert to spend the rest of their life? The, diff- the thing that they ha- all had in common is that they all comprehended the extent of God's love, so they responded by going out. So for example, we're in Lent, yeah? There's two ways you could look at fasting. I fast because I should, and we should, because Christ did. Or the next level is I fast as a response to God's love. And how do we, what are we responding to in God's love? Primarily, what he did on the cross. So that's what we're going to be talking about for the next six weeks. What is the plan of salvation? Yeah? From the beginning of Adam and Eve until the cross and after, what happened in that whole time? To start, I just need to recap a few things, just in case people weren't here for the series in Advent, about creation. Yeah? So I'll ask you since we already did, a lot of us did this already. Yeah? When we talk about creation, we talk about three options. God could either have created the world out of pre-existing matter, option two, out of nothing, option three, out of himself. Okay? Only one of these is the right. Let's vote. Who votes one? Two? Three? No, everyone has to vote. Again. One? Two? Up high so I could count? Three? Okay, more people voted three. The right answer is two. Okay? Obviously, God didn't create out of pre existing matter. That's the easy one to dismiss because who put the matter there? Yeah? So it wouldn't be God. Leaving us with two and three. Three says he created us out of himself out of his own essence. If he did, that means that we are of the same essence or substance as God, and we're not. None of us can create out of nothing. None of us are timeless. None of us are beyond time. None of us are incomprehensible, etc. So God creates us out of nothing. And this tells us a few things. The first thing that it tells us is that because he created us out of nothing, nothing triggered him. So there's nothing there. There's no trigger for him. Okay, Where, where does that lead us? Well, does God need anything? No. So he has nothing to gain from creating us, which means it's a selfless act. There was no trigger, which means it was a free act, which means it's a completely loving act. The other thing that it tells us is that since there's nothing, and from that nothing comes something, us and creation, this something can't exist apart from God. So outside of God, we have no life. And that's important for what we're going to talk about today. So just that's a quick recap. Who created the world? Who, who, who created the world? Yeah? 
Complete with me the creed. Yes, we believe in one Lord. Jesus Christ. The only begotten Son of God. Before all ages. Light of light. Begotten, not made. Of one essence of the Father. With the Father. By. By whom all things were made. So creation was made through Christ. By whom all things were made. I love this picture, this icon here. It's called Christ the Great Architect. Yeah, It's an Eastern icon of Christ the Great Architect. What's he holding in his hands? It's a compass. And what's he measuring? The world. Yeah. So in, in, in the book of Psalms it says that the Lord measures the heavens with the span of his hand. So if I wanted to measure this, I'd be like one, two and a half spans. God, of course God doesn't have hands, but you know, figure of speech. God, when he measures the heavens, he goes like this. So that's like the Milky Way, yeah? So, it's a, it's a beautiful icon showing the greatness of God. So in the Gospel of St. John, we know it says, In the beginning was the Word. All things were made through him. Jesus Christ. Without him, nothing was made that was made. The Church Fathers teach that the Father made heaven and earth through the Son in the Holy Spirit. It's a Trinitarian act. That's important for us today. The other thing that we spoke about, and just as, this is all a quick summary, I'll tell you when the summary stops, is that we were created in the image and likeness of God. The image is what separates us from the animals. Animals can't speak, animals don't have a rational mind, they can't think, yeah, they make sounds but they can't speak like us. They can't create things, look at how humanity has progressed. They can't form relationships the way that we do. We have friends, we have family, we have colleagues, etc. We could use that image in two ways. The first way that we could use it is we could use that gift of speech, of thinking, of freedom, of creativity to hurt people, to do the wrong thing, or we could use it to become more like Christ. That's called likeness. Yeah? So the church teaches that the image of God is to be understood as the powers of the soul, mind, will, feeling which God gives us. The likeness is understood as the ability of man to direct the powers of his soul to becoming like God, to be perfected in striving for truth and good. So I could use my image in the right way or in the wrong way. Yeah? So God created us in his image and likeness. But obviously he didn't create us to kill people, to hurt people and to do bad things. All that came after the fall. It's a quick summary before we just get to the beginning of the actual part. To understand the plan of salvation, we need to know what were the consequences of the fall. Does anyone want to tell me what the consequences of the fall were? What were the consequences of the fall? I know people know the answer, but maybe a bit shy. Death? Death? Oh, fantastic. Yeah, death. That's the first one. Death. We weren't created to die, but we're now dead. Oh God, the great, the eternal, who formed man in? Incorruption and? Death. Which? Huh? I know some of you know, because I could hear some of you singing it during the liturgy. Like, and death, which? Entered through the world, through the envy of the devil, you have destroyed. Death is the first problem. The second problem... And through death, other things come. Death, if we could summarize in two things, the first problem is death. We're now dead. God doesn't want us to be dead. Remember we said if we were created out of nothing, if we've lost that relationship with God, because we don't have a source of life ourselves, 
we're dead. God doesn't want that. The second problem is our eyes, rather than being on God, started looking at things to be God. So people like, oh, see that big yellow object up there? That's God. Actually, see him? He's God. Actually, why don't we get some rocks and carve out a, a person and say that's God. So humanity, rather than having their eyes on God, had their eyes on other things to be God. And their eyes turning away from the gaze of God, we started using our image for bad things. Example, what's the first crime recorded after the fall? Cain and Abel. So we fell, what's the first thing that human beings do? Uh, let's kill someone. Yeah? Like they invented murder, stabbing, or killing, killing him with a rock, whatever they killed him with. Yeah? So consequences. These are really important for us to understand the plan of salvation. We're now subject to mortality, that's death. Sin enters the world, and we now have a disposition or inclination towards sin because the image that we had, it's like you got a painting and you sort of tainted the painting a bit, yeah? So this freedom that God gave me, uh, I want to use it to get revenge, yeah? This freedom of speech that God gave me, I want to insult someone, yeah? In the fall, the image becomes distorted. Our capacity to rule the world weakens. Remember God created Adam and Eve and said, you have dominion over the whole world. What's the first job he gives Adam? Name the animals. We not only cannot rule animals, we can't even rule our lust and passions. Evil emerges, lust, pride, jealousy, murder, hatred. Yeah? The image is now marred. Mankind's gaze, what we call contemplation, turned from God to himself, looking for God among created things. Yeah? So again, a quick recap. God creates us out of nothing, out of free will, love, completely selfless act. We have no life outside of God. We're creating in His image and likeness. We fall. We're now dead. First consequence. Second consequence, we're ignorant of God. Yeah? This is a summary. Then, we have what's called the divine dilemma. What's God going to do? This is a problem. So God has a few options. This is outlined in the book on the Incarnation by St. Athanasius. I'll mention the option. Some of you heard this a couple of months ago. And you tell me if it's appropriate or inappropriate. Option number one. God could just say, because people always say, why did God die on the cross? Well, this is the answer. Option one. Why doesn't God just leave us to die? And say, all right, you guys ate from the tree. Your fault. Everything has a consequence. Die. Why couldn't he do that? Yeah, so like, why create us in the first place? If you, know, if you knew this was going to happen, and you knew that this could have happened, this was an option, why create us if, we, if you're going to leave us to die? Good, why, why else? Yeah, so if God created us out of the selfless act of love, do you actually love us if you're going to watch us die? So this raises some questions. Why would God create man in the beginning if he's going to leave him? You might even say, well, if God left us to die, that means he actually can't save us. He's not capable. How could God let his image in mankind disappear, either through our own negligence or through the deceit of the devil? St. Athanasius says, God would not be true if after saying that he would die, the human being did not die. So God wouldn't be truthful if he changed his mind and said, oh, look, this is really bad. I'll give you one more chance. He wouldn't be truthful, yeah? However, it's not worthy of the goodness of God that those who created by him should be corrupted. So this option doesn't work. 
Option two. Why did you just get them to repent and say, all right, Adam and Eve, just repent. Be good people. Yeah? Why couldn't he do that? Okay, there's free will. Let's assume, Ronnie, that mankind, all of them, freely said, we repent and they never did anything wrong again. Why couldn't that option work? Yeah, they're actually still dead. Yeah, repentance just stops the sin from getting worse, but the, the state hasn't changed. Yeah, repentance is insufficient to restore the fallen nature of man. For example, if someone smokes, smoking, among a whole host of other problems, can cause the devastating disease of lung cancer. If the person gets lung cancer and decides that he or she will never smoke again, this is repentance, seizing smoking, which is a sin. But the person will still need to deal with the lung cancer. This would be the process of salvation, or he will still have the problem still inside him. So repentance just stops the sin. As St. Athanasius says, repentance would neither have preserved the consistency of God, for he again would not have remained true if human beings were not held fast by death. Nor does repentance recall human beings from what is natural, it just stops sin. So that doesn't fix the problem. Option three. Why doesn't God just go back on his word and change his mind so that sin no longer equals death? He is God. He could do whatever he likes. We already explored that one. It's unthinkable that God, the father of truth, should go back upon his word regarding death in order to ensure our consistent existence. He could not falsify himself. So this doesn't work. So far we've seen the summary from last time. So again, we have these two problems that God has to fix. We're dead and we're ignorant of God. Our eyes aren't on God anymore, they're on ourselves. He needs to fix both of these problems. Yeah? So what does he do? As we know, his only option is to defeat death by becoming man. Being the word of the Father and above all, he alone consequently was both able to recreate the universe and was worthy to suffer on behalf of all and to intercede for all before the Father. Remember my question? Who created the world? Jesus Christ, yeah? By whom all things were made. If Jesus Christ created the world, who can recreate the world? Jesus Christ. So no one else can do it. Yeah? That's, a, that's what I was trying to get to. Who can recreate the world? Jesus Christ. So if Jesus Christ created us alive, then who can recreate us? Jesus Christ. Okay? So what did he do? He took a mortal body that in it death might henceforth be destroyed and human beings be renewed again in the image. The image could be fixed up. It's like you have a painting and you've messed up the painting. You're not going to take the painting and burn it. What are you going to do? You're going to get some paint. You're going to try to fix it up. Beautiful. That's what he did. He renewed the image. Yeah. For the purpose then, there was need for none other than the image of the Father, which is Jesus Christ. This is the end of the summary. Yeah? So then we have a few questions. God created Adam and Eve and humanity to live. They're now dead. He needs to fix this up. There's a plan that he's going to put in place. But we could have a few questions, such as, why couldn't God have just died straight away? Why couldn't God, if he wants to fix this, why couldn't he have become man right after Adam and Eve? Like during Cain and Abel's time. Why couldn't he have become man during the time of Noah? 
Like rather than the flood, why not become man, do the miracles, die, and this problem could have been solved long ago? Has anyone thought about that question before? Yeah? What do you guys think? So he would have solved the first problem, but the second thing about ignorance, he still has to teach. I think um, we should swap spaces. Please, like, that's, uh, you've pretty much finished the whole topic. Thanks, Tegan. He, could you explain that again, sorry, before so, I cut you off? So as you said, Abuna, there were these two problems, death and ignorance. Yeah. By, you know, by dying, obviously he solved the first problem, but he still has to, um, you know, show the whole world who he is. And um, he did that through his disciples later on in time and stuff like that. Fantastic. He has to show the world who he is. He has to give us knowledge of God. If he came at the time of Noah, when people had lost the plot, they were worshipping everything, and they were very evil, he said, I'm God. I was like, what? What's that? I'm God, the creator. Like, oh, you're one of the gods. Great. There's another one here. I could do miracles. Oh, you're one of the strong ones as well. There's also the sun. Yeah? They wouldn't have known him. Yeah? For this reason, not... And this also answers the question, why could he have not died as soon as he was born? Why didn't Jesus Christ die with the children of Bethlehem? Yeah? There was an opportunity for him to die there. We could have solved, like, done it 30 years early. Why did he wait until... The cross. Why, why didn't he die with the children of Bethlehem? For this reason, St. Athanasius says, not immediately upon coming did he complete the sacrifice on behalf of all, delivering the body to death and resurrecting it, making himself thereby invisible. So if he died and no one saw it, and then he rose from the dead and no one saw it, then it's an invisible death and resurrection, yeah? But by means of it, he made himself visible. Remaining in it, his body, doing such works, miracles and signs, which made him known to be no longer a human being, but the God word. For in both ways, the Savior exercised his love for human beings through his incarnation. One, in that he both banished death from us. Two, renewed us. And also in that, although being unseen and invisible in heaven, through his works, he appeared and made himself known to be the word of the Father, the ruler and the king of all. Again, why could he have not died privately? Now, all this is important to understand the Old Testament. If you want to know why God made the flood, and people are like, oh, the flood's very horrible. Why did he do the flood? We have to understand this first. Why couldn't he have died privately? I hope you could see the screen. Four, four things. Number one, the death of men under ordinary circumstances is the result of their natural weakness. So the fact that I die when I get sick or when I'm old is because my flesh is weak. They're essentially impermanent. So after a time, they fall ill, and when they're worn out, they die. But the Lord isn't like that. He's not weak. He's the power of God and the Word of God and the very life itself. So that's why he couldn't die privately. Two, if he had died quietly in his bed, like other people, it would have looked like as if he did so in accordance with his nature and as though he was just like everyone else. But because he was himself the word, life and power, his body was made strong and because death had to be accomplished, he took the occasion of perfecting his sacrifice not from himself but from others who killed him. 3. He accepted death at the hands of men to destroy it in his own body. Death had to come before the resurrection. For obviously there's no resurrection without death. If he died in secret and unwitnessed, he would have left the resurrection without any proof to support it. So the disciples all went out proving the resurrection. 
But what happens if they didn't witness his death? Can you imagine if Jesus vanished for a week and said, oh, in that week I died and resurrected? They're like, really? How do we know? He publicly died. It was a very public death. Four. How could his disciples have boldness in speaking of the resurrection unless they could state it as a fact that he had first died? And even if you're an atheist, there's a histor the historical evidence that a person called Jesus from a town called Nazareth was crucified on a cross. Yeah? This is a, you can't dispute that historically. Or how could their hearers be expected to believe the assertion unless they themselves also had witnessed his death? So the people that the apostles are preaching to, they themselves saw him die. So all this is important. Yeah? We now get to this. God has to... Oh, sorry. I didn't... I thought you were reading this on the screen with me. Okay, my bad. We get to now the plan of salvation, which we're going to talk about in the next few weeks. We're going to take it nice and slow. That's what the way is here for, to take things nice and slow in detail, yeah? The plan of salvation. How do we get from creation, the fall, all the way to the cross? What happens in the middle? I want to introduce you to a new word. It's called economy. You don't know what economy means? Where do you hear the word economy? Anyone? You don't? You've never heard the word economy? Everyone has. But in which setting have you heard the word economy? Which setting? You guys are very quiet today. I'm just going to pick people that I know. Dave, where do you hear the word economy? Business. Exactly. Business and commerce, yeah? So when people hear it in church, they're like, what? What's... Uh, What's church got to do with business and finances and things like that, yeah? I want to show you a, um, I want to share with you uh, a quote from the liturgy of St. Gregory. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Salvation, True Father, Remedies, Ministered Salvation. Okay, he says, this is the part where the priest says to Christ, you have shown me the power of your authority, you have given sight to the blind, you have raised the dead from the tombs, you have established nature by the word, you have manifested to me the economy of your tender mercy. So the, the money of your tender mercy, what does economy mean? Yeah? It's really important that we understand what this word means because it comes up in Tezbeha a couple of times. Economy... In Greek, economia has several meanings. The basic meaning of the word is handling something, disposition, or the management of a thing, usually assuming or implying good or prudent handling of the matter of hand. So economy means how you manage something in a good way. So divine economy, or the economy of salvation, is God's handling or God's management of us in a fallen state and of the world and mankind. So, definition. Divine economy equals the arrangements God made in order to bring about salvation after the fall. So, I'm going to stop using plan and I'm going to start using the word economy. Because if on the flyer we said the economy of salvation, people have been like, what are you talking about, yeah? So, I'm not going to use the word plan anymore. We're going to use the word economy. That's a word that the church fathers used, yeah? Divine economy are all the arrangements that God made in order to bring about man's salvation after the fall. 
Let's go to the Old Testament timeline. Hopefully you could see that on the screen, yeah? Most of us know up to Moses quite well, and then after that it gets a bit hazy, yeah? These kings come out of nowhere, there's an exile somewhere, then there's these minor prophets and everyone's confused, yeah? We start with Adam and Eve. Um, the different gradients on this uh, diagram show you if mankind is doing good, we're at the top. If we're doing bad, we're at the bottom. Yeah? So we start, Cain, Abel, and we get to a really bad dip at Noah. Yeah? Things get better with Abraham. And God, before that, so in the book of Genesis, the first 10 or 11 chapters of Genesis, I think, are focused on creation, the world becoming a bad place, Noah's Ark, and then after that, God only focuses on one man and his family for the rest of the whole Old Testament, and that man is Abraham. Why would God focus on one man and his family and not everyone else? We're going to find out in a second, yeah? So focus on Abraham. You have Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. They get stuck in Egypt for a few hundred years. Then Moses comes. Then you have Gideon. Things get really bad. You have some kings. You have Samson there. So gets pretty good with David and Solomon. Then the kingdom gets divided. We have an exile. They come back from the exile. They have the second temple where they rebuild the temple. And then for 400 years, nothing. No prophets. Absolute silence until the annunciation of St. John the Baptist. Okay? So throughout this whole time, there's a plan. It's not random. This is part of the economy of salvation. How does God get humanity to the point where he can become man and have a group of people that are going to believe in him so that this group of people could go out and preach Christianity to the whole world until today. Because if God came at the time of Noah and he died, would there have been anyone to preach? Would there have been anyone to know who he is? So for example, at the time of Noah and even after that, a lot of people didn't believe in one God. They believed in several gods. So what's the first thing God had to do? They have to know that there's how many gods? One. So that's why in the Ten Commandments, look at the first commandment. Yeah? What else did they have to know? They had to know that God is not weak like all the other gods. What's God like? He's strong. So he had to put certain things in place to make sure that humanity can get to the point where they're ready to receive him on the cross. Example. When Moses was gone for 40 days to get the Ten Commandments, what was his brother Aaron doing? He was praying all day, right? No, he wasn't. What was he doing? Out of what? So imagine this. Moses' brother, Aaron the priest, turns around to all the Israelites and says, Hey, have you got gold? We've got gold. Give it to me here. I'm going to melt it and make a cow. I'm going to worship this cow. I'm going to say that this cow was the one that brought us out of Egypt. And you go to the people who say, like, Hold on. You just walked through water. Yeah. You just had to pass over. Your kids didn't die. Yeah. You just got out of Egypt. You've been stuck there for like 400 years. Yeah. But who got you out? The cow. Hold on. Are these people that are ready for Christ to come and say, love your enemies? Impossible. So what did God have to do? Uh, no. You have to know that there's someone called God and he's powerful. And you have to know that there are things that are holy. So what does he say? If you touch the Ark of Covenant, what happens? You die. Not because God wants to go around killing people, but for God to allow... For, for the salvation to be affected, they need to know a few things. So it says, don't touch the Ark of Covenant. And build the temple. Don't go into the Holy of Holies unless once a year and not everyone. Only this priest. That's it. Once a year. Never go in again. 
build a tabernacle, but not anyone can do this. You have to do this, it has to be this long, that high, this color, this gold, and not anyone can make the gold, it has to be that person. Why did he do all that? He's getting humanity along this journey ready for something. That's called the economy of salvation, the plan of salvation. Look at the book of Genesis, yeah? If you could see it on that diagram, the book of Genesis. Oh, I can't see that. Okay. Look at my here. I think, yeah. Okay. Book of Genesis um, is uh, 50 chapters. For the first 11 chapters, it's about creation. Cain kills Abel, the flood, um, the Tower of Babel, Noah. And then from then on, he picks one family and that's Abraham's family. And he makes a promise to Abraham. It's called a covenant. We're going to look at covenants in a second. And for the rest of the Old Testament, it's all about Abraham and his family. Why? Because through Abraham and his family, he effects salvation, and then everyone is invited to the table. Us? None of it, no one here is a Jew, right? All of us are Gentiles. Back then... God wasn't working with the Gentiles. Yeah? He's working with the people of Israel. People are like, oh, it's not fair, but hold on, you haven't seen the whole story. He's doing this for a purpose. He needs to get to the crucifixion, resurrection, and then go out and preach to all the Gentiles. Yeah? And we become Christian as well. So that's what we want to look at in the next few weeks. How does God work with the different people for the plan of salvation? Why are we doing this? Because we hope, as St. Paul says, that by looking at this, we can be able to deeply or more comprehend the height, the length, the width, the depth of the love of God so that we can respond the same way the saints responded. Yeah? So let's talk about covenants. We're not going to talk about all of them. We're going to talk about one today. This word's important. So two words that we've learned today, economy and covenant. God is determined on saving, sorry, typo, humanity, and he does so through a covenantal relationship. Where do you hear the word covenant in the liturgy? Have you heard it in the liturgy before? You guys are really quiet. Marina, have you heard it in the liturgy? <laughs> Marina. You have? Definitely. He tasted and gave it to his own saintly disciples and holy apostles saying, Take drink of this, it's my blood, of the new covenant. Okay, testament means covenant. So you have the old covenant, the old testament, and the new covenant, new testament. So if there's a new testament, that means there was a, if there's a new covenant, there was an old covenant. What's this old covenant? And what's the new covenant? New covenant is at the end of Lent, the week before um, Passion Week, yeah? What's a covenant first? Uh, covenant, in Hebrew it's berit. In Greek, the Atheki, that's why you say that word in the um, liturgy, appears 280 times in the Old Testament. What's a covenant? It's a formal relationship between two parties who agree to a set of promises so they can work towards a common goal. But the key thing about a covenant is that I will keep my end even if you don't keep your end. Like marriage, marriage is a covenant, different to a contract. So when God makes a covenant, he's making a promise. And he says to humanity, even though, even if you don't keep your end, and we don't, because we see that throughout the whole Old Testament, 
I'll keep my end. Yeah? The first step God takes in repairing the partnership that was broken at the fall is to select a small group of people and make a new partnership with them, a covenant. And in this covenant, God makes promises to people and he asks them to fulfill certain commitments. But we know they don't. We never uphold our side of the covenant. But God does. Yeah? What are the covenants that we're going to look at in the next few weeks? These are the Old Testament covenants. Covenant with Adam, we call the Adamic covenant. A covenant with Noah, called the Noahic covenant. Covenant with Abraham, Abrahamic. Covenant with Moses, Mosaic. A covenant with David, the Davidic covenant. So God, throughout the Old Testament, he has an economy, a plan to work towards salvation. Which shows what? That when God, God out of his love, when he sees that humanity has fallen, he's not like, you know, some people expect he's sitting up there on his throne. He's like, oh, look, when humanity, humanity could come back to me, whatever they want. You know, sometimes when we have a friend that upset us, like, look, I did my part. And sometimes for us it's justified in certain circumstances. I did my part. If he wants to come back, I've got an open door. Brahto. I'll live my life. God doesn't do that. What does he do? He relentlessly goes after the people of Israel, after humanity throughout the whole Old Testament, even though they do some really bad things. So if God does that to humanity in the Old Testament, isn't he going to do that with me, you, and that person, that person, this person, throughout our whole life? So if you have a friend or a family member or someone that entered into the covenant with God, so at one point in their life they said to God, I'm in. Is God not going to do the same as he did with the people in the Old Testament? Isn't he going to bring them back? Yeah? And a lot of people who've been serving for a long time say that. They say that we've just seen people who've been really far, they come back and they live really purely and then they die. It's like God's like, no, you're coming, you're coming. Yeah? Yes, you have your free will, but out of his love he brings us to him. Of course, at the end of the day, a person can choose to reject him. But all we know is that through God's covenant, His love is shown. But the people of Israel did some really bad stuff. Has anyone read the book of Hosea? What's Hosea about? God tells Hosea to marry a type of person. Does anyone remember who He tells him to marry? A prostitute. God, what are you doing? Why did He tell Hosea to marry a prostitute? In the Old Testament, the problem of the people wasn't atheism, it was idolatry, they used to, and adultery. They used to leave God and go to other gods. So God said to Hosea, Hosea, I need you to preach. The people that I've made a covenant with, after all these years, they've went nuts again. He goes to God, okay. He goes, but I want you to do something in the meantime. He goes, well, he goes go marry a prostitute. Why? Why? Because when Hosea's wife is unfaithful to him, he knows what it feels like to be cheated on. So when he goes to preach, what's he preaching from? He knows what, like, it was a context that he's preaching from, yeah? It's a really good book, Hosea, have a read of it, yeah? All these covenants serve the purpose of creating a new partnership with God, which can eventually invite everyone. The covenant with Abraham was for his family. Gentiles were invited, Yeah? But he did that for the purpose so that after salvation, after the cross, everyone's invited. 
But unfortunately, Israel breaks these covenants with God. Nevertheless, through the Old Testament, prophets talked about a day when God would once again create a new covenant, which we want to find out about. It's very exciting. One that would completely restore all the broken covenants that came before it. And this covenant was fulfilled by Jesus Christ. If we contemplate on God's love through the covenants and through the economy of salvation, then naturally your response is to pray. No one has to tell you to pray. You know, sometimes, for example, you could hear a talk about prayer, but you don't feel motivated to pray. But it was a really nice talk about prayer. Or you could hear about talk about a completely unrelated thing and you want, you're motivated to pray after that. Yeah? For example, do you remember the transfiguration? When the three disciples saw Christ transfigured, what did they do? Did they sit on the chair? What did they do? Do you remember what it says? They fell on their faces. One priest says, that's the posture of a Christian. A Christian's posture is on your face. Why did they fall on their face? They responded to the glory of God. They saw the glory of God like, I just have to go on my face. Example, if I give you a really nice gift, what's your response? Thank you. Yeah? No one had to say to you, hey David, could you please say go thank you to him? It's your natural response. If we comp- comprehend this, then my natural response is pray, serve, read my Bible, have communion, and the extremest or the, the fullest response is I'll die. That's why Amata is ready to say, yes, I will die. Yeah? So have a think about that. Have a think about that, especially during Lent. Am I fasting out of duty, out of chore, or as a response to what God did for me? To wrap up in the next five minutes, I want to go through the shortest covenant, the covenant with Adam. This has two parts to it, yeah? Remember we said Adam? Did anyone remember what the next covenant was? Noah? After Noah? Abraham? Then? Moses? Last one? David. And then you have the new covenant. The exciting and beautiful new covenant. Yeah? In the covenant with Adam, the word covenant isn't used. But most people can look at it as a covenant based on what's happening. Yeah? It has, the covenant has two parts, as with a lot of covenants. Sorry. There's two parts to it, but there's two aspects as with a lot of covenants. Most covenants have the aspect, apart from Noah's covenant, of God's part and our part. What's God's part in the covenant? God gives the world as a gift to humanity and appoints them as divine image bearers who will oversee it. He tells the humanity, you're responsible for the world. Adam, go name the animals. So he sees a lion and what does he call it? You will be a lion. You will be a, what should we call this thing? Elephant. Elephant. Yeah? And we know this in Genesis, he says, let us make man in our image, typo, sorry, according to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of heaven, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that moves on the earth. So the aspect of God's part is, he gives the world as a gift to humanity. He goes, here you go, gift. But what's your part as a human being? Humans are asked with caring for, cultivating the garden, and to trust God's knowledge of good and evil over their own attempts to define right and wrong. So humanity's problem was, we wanted to say what's right and wrong. 
And we all do that. Whenever we sin, at the moment that we sin, we've decided it's okay. Yeah? At this point, it's okay. Yeah? We've left God's standards of right and wrong. And we know that in Genesis it says, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Then you took man and you formed him and you put him in the garden to tend and keep it. So the first part of Adam's covenant is the part where he gifts the world to him and humanity. The second part of the covenant is after Adam and Eve fall. He makes a promise with them. What's the promise that he makes? So remember the first part? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat, you will die. The second part of the covenant, the beautiful part. After Adam and Eve fall, he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman. Who's you? The serpent. Between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's a prophecy. It's a promise that God will save us. He shall bruise your head. Christ shall bruise the serpent's head. Defeat him. And you shall bruise his heel. That's why sometimes in icons of the crucifixion you see a serpent at the bottom. So God promises to Adam and Eve. Think about that. As soon as Adam and Eve have made the big mistake, what does God do? He promises to save them. Beautiful. That's the first covenant he makes. So God has to stay true to his covenant. So as we'll see next week, when Noah, at Noah's time where humanity is going crazy, if God let that happen, then he's not staying true. Because Noah's going to die. His family's going to die. So everyone left is not even going to know who God is. So what's God going to do? How's he going to save the world? He's left with one option. And that's what we're going to look at next week. Prior to the fall, the covenant gave clear insight into God's intention and purpose for man, which gave man honor and dominion on the earth. After the fall, the Adamic covenant outlined God's plan and his promise of salvation. It outlines God's love for us. The Adamic covenant finds its fulfillment in Christ on Golgotha, where he crushed the serpent's head, trampled down death by death on the cross. So that's the covenant with Adam. That's the shortest one. Yeah? For the next few weeks, we'll just, this last slide, next few weeks, the weeks is covered by the picture, we're going to look at the covenant with Noah that he made. We're going to look at why the, so remember we said plan of salvation, economy of salvation, yeah? So I could just do a quick timeline again. God creates us out of nothing, out of complete selflessness, freedom and love. He creates us in his image and likeness. We fall, the consequence of the fall is death. Consequence number two, we're ignorant of God. He needs to defeat death and teach us who he is and what it means to be his child. So he makes a promise to Adam and says, Adam, I promise, Adam and Eve, I promise unto humanity that his heel will crush the serpent's head. I promise to save you. Then the next thing that happens is Noah's time. So God has to stay true to his promise. So he does the flood and he makes another promise with Noah. And then Moses comes and he makes a promise, uh, Abraham, sorry. He makes a promise to Abraham. And then he makes another promise to Moses. And he makes another promise to David. That's what we're going to look at. The Noahic covenant, Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. In preparation for next week, if you could have a read of the first 12 chapters of Genesis, which will take you 
probably like 45 minutes in one hit. Read it in one hit. When you get to the names, you can skip them. That's okay. But try to read it in one hit. Yeah? Have a look at what's happening because essentially, if you look at it, that period covers thousands of years, but it's only 11 chapters because it's like Moses is trying to get to a point. Yes, God created the world. Yes, Adam and Eve fell. Look how bad the world's getting. Ooh, Noah, then Abraham. Let's slow down. Let's talk about what God is doing with Abraham. So this is all, the, this is the context or the lens that we're looking together as we look for the next few weeks in Lent, leading up to Holy Week, which I think is a good time to do it, for the economy of salvation, how God arranges things to save us. And as you're looking through it, ask yourself, if this is how God has been revealed to us, would he then not do the same with you and me? Some people have this like, view of God that he's like, oh, I've done too many sins, I can't come back anymore. Yeah? And you see this all through Lent, through the prodigal son, um, through the Samaritan woman. You see this constant message, message reply, um, uh, revisited. God is always moving towards each and every single one of us, regardless of where we are. And when a person has tasted God's love, then their natural reaction is to do everything that we do in church. That's why you find that a person who's repented, they've really tasted God's love, they do things sometimes that people that have been in church throughout their whole lives can't do. Yeah? So for example, like look at Moses the Black. When he repented, what did he do? When he became a monk. Yeah? Sam, Samaritan woman, when she repented, what did she do? She went and became uh, one of, and a helper to the disciples, St. Fatini. So that's what we're going to look at in the next few weeks.